Well, welcome back to some of you. Welcome to so many of you. It's nice to actually hear, please scoot in. We need to make room. So we will soon be returning to two services. That will begin on September 7th. So just to remind you about that. And by that time, we will be out of Exodus. But we have been in Exodus for quite a while and for more than two months in the Ten Commandments. Now, I hope that you've been paying attention. So this is not a rhetorical question. But I'm asking you, what would you say is the basic theme of Exodus, and in particular the Ten Commandments? Freedom. A life of freedom. Exactly. We, we have been talking about a life of freedom. And if you are visiting for the first time today, you may be saying, wait a second. They're talking about God's law and freedom? Law and freedom in the same sentence? That, that seems counterintuitive. That, that doesn't make sense. But what we have been discovering is that the obedience of faith, which is what uh, Paul calls it in Romans, the obedience of faith is actually freeing. Because it is living as we were created to live. Think for a moment about a fish. A fish out of water. Is that fish truly free? No. Because that fish, that fish is living outside of the context for which it was created. In fact, that fish is dying because it is outside of the context for which it was created. But the fish in water is free. Free to live, free to swim. And that's what we find in the Ten Commandments. That we are learning a life of freedom, learning to live the life that we were created to live, that we can swim freely in grace and obedience to our God. We were created to live as love God, love neighbor people. And you know, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And his response, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what was Jesus doing? He was summarizing God's law. He was summarizing the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law. If you remember, we, we walked through the first table, uh, looking at commandments one to four, emphasizing our love of God, our relationship with God. And then we made a shift with the fifth commandment, commandments five through ten, the second table of the law, emphasizing our love for one another, relating to our neighbor. Well, today we are getting ever closer to the end of the Ten Commandments and, and of course, to the end of the second table of the law, and we encounter the Ninth Commandment. Thank you, Lanning, for being honest with us today, not lying up here. Because, what, you know, when we think of the Ninth Commandment, we think not lying, which is a good way to think about it. And, of course, the positive side is it's about truth-telling, speaking the truth. Winston Churchill said, Men occasionally stumble over the truth. But most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. Sad thing is that can often be said of us. We stumble upon truth and we hurry off as if nothing happened. And I hope that's not the case for us this day as we gather. 
as God works his truth deeper and deeper into our lives that rather than just simply stumble over it and get up and run away, we would be those who would engage in the pursuit of truth. Our text this morning is Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 2 and 16. It's, it's found on page 61. We have been camped out on page 61 for quite a while now. But it is on page 61 of your pew Bible if you're using one of those. But before I read our text, let's take a moment to pray. Our gracious God, this is your word. And we confess this morning that we often do not believe you at your word. We, we often don't believe the truth. We stumble over it and we, we hurry off to live in an illusion rather than reality. Lord, we pray that you would grip us this morning. That you would arrest us, that you would woo us, that you would call us to recognize and to believe and to respond to your truth. We need you to do this work and we ask that you would do it, that you would open your word to us and that you would open us to your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 16. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, this morning I want us to consider three questions as we take a look at this command. Three questions that we have used before in understanding some of the commands. And the questions are very simple. What are we to do? Why should we do it? And how do we do it? What, why, and how? What are we to do? Why should we do it? And how in the world can we do this? So the first question, what are we commanded to do in the ninth commandment? Well, it's simple, right? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. But it actually goes a little bit deeper than that. I want you to pay attention to this little word false for just a moment. It's found here in Exodus 20, a similar word in Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are given again. And those who have translated the Hebrew into our English translations here have correctly used the word false, meaning untrue. But listen to this nuance. A little bit more specifically, it refers to that which is vain or worthless. Now, what, what I'm trying to get at is this, that the commandment is not simply about factually inaccurate statements. Because we can be factually accurate and still mislead someone. Jennifer Allen and I were talking about this just the other day. And I said, you, you know, we can be factually accurate and mislead someone. And she said, yes, that's called manipulation. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer. 
of course, I know most of us here don't know anything about manipulation, but nonetheless, some people are prone to that. But seriously, you know, we are in a campaign year. Are you ready for the political ads? Some of them already come out, negative campaign ads, and there are those that take the opponent's comments, take a factually accurate statement, take it out of context for the sake of misleading. Now, of course, if that's in favor for the candidate that we like, we go, oh, that's fantastic. But what if it's against the candidate that we want to see in office? I cannot believe someone would do that. That is such a lie. And yet we do the same thing all the time. We do it in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our schools, our places of work. Maybe you are at work and your supervisor asks you a question and you make the comment about Steve Tewksbury. Well, yes, you know, Steve has been doing this lately. And it's true. He has. But you have twisted it in such a way that the supervisor is like, hmm, I better look into what Steve is actually doing. We are saying things that are factually accurate in a way to advantage ourselves and or cut down other people. We, we do it to mislead. Someone else I was talking to, as we were really thinking about this command, it was quite convicting because we realized how easy it is for us to shade the truth. Do you, you, you know those moments when someone comes and asks you a question and very quickly in your mind you're thinking, how can I say something that is factually right but not have them think the thing that they want to hear? An example, I say, Ben, would you, would you like to you know, hang out this Friday? And he's like, I really don't want to hang out, but how can I tell Camper I don't want to hang out with him? You know, I think I might have other plans. That's right, freshmen move in, I've got freshmen move in. So, you know, I don't feel as bad that Ben has just dissed me. Actually, I'm glad that you went to freshman move in and didn't hang out with me. That was a good thing to do. But, <laughs> but it's those moments when we are, we are trying to give the impression of one thing when reality is quite different. And in our hearts, we are rationalizing I just did not lie, did I? No, I did not lie. And we begin to believe something that is not truth. A lie in our hearts, in our minds. So the issue here is deception. We can make factually accurate statements and still be deceptive. Oh, but there's more. One commentator who helped me put a lot of this together, pointed out that sometimes we make factually accurate statements and there is no intent to deceive. In fact, the intent is to harm, is to hurt with the truth. It's part of what Lanning was talking about up here. So much of our confrontation, our conflict is marked by that. 
where we, we demonize the other person. And sometimes we don't even want to, but our hearts are just doing it so that we feel good about cutting them down. That's why many of us avoid conflict. That's why we are taking 12 weeks to talk about how the gospel speaks in to the conflict of our lives and our relationships. You know, Heather and I have been married nearly 12 years, and some of my worst moments as a husband are the moments that I have spoken something to her that is factually accurate. I am not intending to deceive her, but I am trying to hurt her deeply. Those moments when I am more concerned with being right or at least convincing myself and her that I'm right, more concerned with being right than with the relationship itself. Truth without love. And truth without love is a vain, worthless witness. Truth without love is a false witness. And so in the ninth commandment, we're commanded to avoid being a vain, worthless, false witness. And we are called to speak truth with our lips, with our lives, and from our hearts. But why? Why? Why do that? Well, that leads us to the next question. Our second question. Why should we do it? Why should we speak the truth? You see, we speak the truth because truth-telling is central. It is essential to loving our neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Did you notice this commandment? It's just slightly longer than the three before it. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Why does it simply say you shall not lie? Well, it's that clarifying clause there against your neighbor. It reminds us, in fact, it tells us that truth telling is about loving our neighbor. It's about loving other people. Now, there are other reasons that we might tell the truth. But all other reasons, when they're not grounded in love for neighbor, all other reasons are about selfishness and self-love. Primarily telling the truth when it is advantageous to me. Now, there may be times when you tell the truth in love and it is advantageous to you. That's bonus. But if my primary motive is to advantage myself, then you better believe I'm going to bend the truth. I'm going to lie. I'm going to mislead. I'm going to deceive when that, too, is advantageous to me. When it's about me and not my neighbor, it is a vain, worthless, false witness against that neighbor. When my attempts to obey any of the commands come out of my own strength. Again, Lanning was referring to that that so many times, especially in conflict. I am going to fight Through this, when it is in our own strength, trying to obey the ninth commandment, any of them, when it's about me, the heart is not motivated by God's grace. It's not trusting 
in a greater reality, in a truth that is piercing our hearts by the gospel. Rather, we're motivated by personal gain. And so what happens is our goodness is actually a facade. It looks good on the outside, but it is hollow and empty on the inside. And boy, I remember first experiencing that. One Easter morning, woke up, the huge chocolate Easter bunny. And boy, it looked good on the outside. And I thought, I am set for the next several months. And then I took a bite. And it crumbled. Inside it was hollow and empty. A vain, worthless, false witness against me. So just a side note, Easter, when it comes around, parents buy the solid chocolate bunnies. But you see, when we become absorbed with selfish goodness, we're absorbed with ourselves. And what happens? But we withdraw from community. Now, we can be surrounded by people and still be turning within, guarding ourselves against others, Always calculating, what should I say now to my advantage? And what ends up happening is we sentence ourselves to solitary confinement. Now, I think most of you probably know what that is. Maybe you've seen it in a film, a TV movie. A prisoner is put in solitary confinement. I know we have uh, some folks that have been in war, some veterans of war. I, I don't know if any of you have been prisoners of war and experienced solitary confinement. But why is solitary confinement one of the most extreme punishments? Because we were not created for isolation. We were created for community. We think we can can be obedient to these commands by ourselves. If I could just go lock myself in my office and not deal with any of you, I could probably start checking these off. But that's not true because we were created for community. So now we've got to learn how to follow these commandments with all of you, each other. And of course, we're going to run into conflict. And so we'll figure out how to deal with that in a couple of weeks. But the ninth commandment about truth telling, it's out of love for our neighbor because without truth telling, community falls apart. Someone said human community is destroyed and individual people are destroyed when you don't tell the truth. And if you want a picture of this, watch the reality TV show Survivor. Okay? Survivor, I I believe it's pitting a couple of teams of about a dozen each against each other. But it's really not about these two teams being against each other. It's really about every single individual out for his or herself. And the the object is to defeat all of you by deception so that at the end I can stand as the sole survivor. And when that happens in our communities, we're sentencing ourselves to solitary confinement. And yet the gospel through the Ten Commandments, invites us, calls us, empowers us to move 
from isolation to belonging. From isolation to belonging. From the individual self to community. As we learn to trust God, the God of truth, as we learn to trust one another, those in whom God is working to be truth-tellers, and we become more and more and more love God and love neighbor people, people in relationship. And this is what the church is called to be, a truth-telling community loving our neighbors. But we do need to explore a bit more the truth about ourselves and the church to get a better picture of reality. And so that takes us to our third and final question. So we've looked at the what, we've looked at the why, how. Third question, how do we do it? Two words, realization and transformation. Realization and transformation. Let's start with realization. We must realize the truth about ourselves. Maybe you've heard it said before that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. Isn't that cheerful? I've heard somebody once say, cheer up, you're, you're worse off than you thought. But it's interesting, when we go to Scripture, James notes we all struggle in many ways. The Apostle Paul declares, I have not already obtained glory. I am not yet made perfect. I am still struggling with sin. And then John writes, and you heard part of this this morning, in the assurance of pardon. John writes this, and we're not focusing so much at this moment on the assurance of pardon part. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And yet all the time we are pretending that we're okay. I've gotten over that sin. I don't have to deal with that anymore. But God's word says otherwise. We must realize... The deceit in our hearts, the deceit that comes so easily out of our mouths that is permeating our lives. Because daily we break the ninth commandment as vain, worthless, false witnesses against our neighbors. Now, one of the many times that I was struggling to get a grip on reality, one of those moments was on the soccer field in high school. I played goalkeeper for our varsity soccer team. I know most goalkeepers are a little bit taller than I am. We had a great need, and so they picked the short guy to fill it. But it was a game, it was a tournament game. We were playing our cross city rival. And it was first half, 0 0. And all of a sudden, breaking through my defense came Norman Dwart from Sweden. It's not fair that Norman could come play in America when he was from Sweden because that year he was the top goal scorer in the whole state of Georgia. 
And I had watched him warm up before in front of a radar gun, a police radar gun, and he could kick the ball upwards of 70 miles an hour. So you better believe I wasn't getting real excited when I saw that it was Norman the ball in an open field and me and my goal. But I did what a goalkeeper is supposed to do. I tried to time it the best I could, come out of my box, come off my line, back from the goal, and time it so that hopefully I would get to the ball when it was just out of reach from Norman as he was dribbling. Of course, Norman's too good for that. Maybe I will get to the ball as Norman is taking his shot and it will deflect out from the, from the side of the goal. Norman took that shot. I was diving at his feet to stop that shot. And everything went black. And then I rolled over. And then I opened my eyes. And everything was green and yellow and blue. But I saw the ball roll out of bounds. I saved the shot. Okay, but that's not the point of the story. <laughs> ah, that was a good moment. But what happened was I began to say, I'm okay. I can get up. I can do this. I can finish this game. And, of course, I had knocked it out of bounds, so it was now a corner kick. That means my defense was hovering around my goal to, to defend it, and their offense, including Norman, were coming down to score. They were setting up for the kick, and I kept trying to wipe this clot of dirt away from my eye because not only was everything green and blue and yellow, but I just couldn't see. And then I realized none of the guys were looking at the ball about to be kicked. And this one guy from the opposing team said, Dude, <laughs> your eye is messed up. Okay, if you're a little squeamish, hold on for just a moment. I realized it wasn't dirt in my eye, but it was a flap of skin. Yes. Norman, it hit me pretty hard. And what did I do? No, no, no. I'm okay. I'm all right. We can do this thing. Fortunately for me, there were other people who had a better grip on reality at that moment, including the referee who stopped the game, called my coach, and they sent me to the hospital, to the emergency room where I got 17 stitches. And you can't even tell today unless you look real closely. But why am I telling you this? Because it's a fun story and I wanted to relive my childhood. <laughs> I had to come to a realization that I was hurting and that I needed help. And so where was I taken? But I was taken to a hospital, a place where people go to receive care and to find healing. So I want to ask you a question. Do you realize your need for help this morning? Do you realize that you are bleeding? Do you realize that there is something blocking your vision? And another question. What do you think about the church? You got up this morning. You got dressed. You came to church. What do you think about the church? Well, Dr. Paul Tripp, who is a, a counselor, a pastor, and a professor at Westminster Seminary, writes this. Many people see the church 
as a well-designed, well-led, successful organization. But when I look at the church, I see a hospital full of people in various stages of dealing with the disease of sin. Imagine a doctor coming out of an examining room to say to his receptionist, sick people, sick people, sick people. All I ever see is sick people. Why don't healthy people come here? (laughs) And yet the church is full of people dealing with the effects of sin. People who are not yet fully formed into the image of Jesus Christ. The church is full of people who have lost their way and don't even know it. Who haven't made a connection between their daily problems and the transforming grace of Christ. Everywhere you look, you will find couples who are struggling to love. Parents who are struggling to be patient. Children who are attracted to temptation. Friends and colleagues who battle the disappointments of imperfect relationships. This is 100% of the church's membership. 100%. That's all of us. Dude, you are messed up. (laughs) But fortunately, the truth doesn't end there. The truth continues. The truth we must realize is the truth of transformation. Not only must we come to a realization, but as as Dr. Tripp also points out, insight does not equal change. A good understanding, a good realization does not equal change. We need something to happen within us. And so he continues about the church. The church is not merely a theological classroom. It is a conversion Confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their trust in Jesus, the great physician. Where they gather to know and love him better and learn to love others as he is designed, becoming love God, love neighbor people who know truth and who speak truth. The church is messy and inefficient, but it is God's wonderful mess, the place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. The place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. Transformation, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ at work in us. For those of you who are a little uncomfortable when I read from 1 John and left some of it out, be comforted by this truth. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As Ben pointed out, all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all sin. All unrighteousness. And we know, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is and is being perfected. 
This is the truth about us. And this is the truth about God. And this is the truth about what God does in us and for us. As we repent, as we believe, as we obey. Yes, as as we repent, as we turn from sin and turn toward God. As we believe, as we trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, winning us salvation, bringing us forgiveness and hope and healing. But not only as we repent and as we believe, but also as we obey. As we obey by His grace. And as one of my seminary professors liked to say, the good good news about this obedience is that the word empowers the obedience it commands. The word empowers the obedience it commands. Working out our salvation because it is God who works in us. Making us into love God, love neighbor people. Do you hear this good news? This is the gospel and the gospel changes everything. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth. Not only am I more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe, but through faith in Jesus Christ, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dare hope. We are all sinners, and Jesus is the Savior of sinners. I continue to stumble and fall, and Jesus continues to rescue me. This is the grace and truth that changes lives. This is the truth that is at work within us, and the truth that we are called to proclaim with our lips and with our lives. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the truth that you love us so much that you would give your son that we might know you. Speaking truth to us in love on Calvary. The cross of Christ. Lord, would you convince us of this reality? And would you help us to proclaim with our lips and our lives the truth of the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen.